Our text this morning is the well-known gospel lesson we just read about the vine and the branches. Like last week, we won't be following the text in strict order, but we will make three points. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. The vine remaining or abiding and fruits. So we're in John chapter 15, first then, the vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser or the gardener. And then again in verse 5, I'm the vine, you, you're the branches. Now, we need to step back just a little because this vineyard imagery is evoking something uh, that resonates quite deeply with God's chosen people. It's something like an eagle would be for an American. It has the virtual status of a national symbol. Coins had vines on them. And there were golden vines at the temple entrance. And this is because Israel herself is often depicted as a vineyard in the Old Testament. And of course, the vine imagery particularly evokes the rootedness the grounded existence of Israel, Israel's prosperity, Israel's nourishment in the land. Not to mention the fact that Jesus uses the vineyard imagery in his own teaching, particularly in the parables. Not in John's gospel, but in the other gospels. And in all of these cases where Jesus uses this image, The vineyard has failed to produce the fruit that God demands, and the vineyard itself stands under judgment. And perhaps the most relevant background text here is Psalm 80, which you just heard as our Old Testament lesson this morning. Israel's depicted as a vineyard of God's own planting, which is now ravaged and overrun, and it awaits the Lord's restoration. Let me read just another section of Psalm 80 again, just to remind you of the Old Testament lesson. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took root and filled the land. You have broken down its walls. Why have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass by pick its grapes. And then follows in the text a plea. A plea for the the man at God's right hand, the son of man, to come and restore the barren, broken down vineyard that is Israel. So, it's with that background in the history of salvation that Jesus comes and he says, really astonishingly, familiar to us, but astonishing in the first century context, I am the true vine. It's akin to me saying, I am America. It's that sort of claim. I am the true vine. Don't miss the force of the word true. Jesus has already been called the true light, right? The true bread. So true, it not only means authentic, it does mean that. But here it means more than that. It means final, right? It means definitive. 
To claim to be the true vine is to say, I am Israel. I'm the new Israel. I'm Israel reconstituted. There is now only one vine in Yahweh's vineyard, Jesus of Nazareth. I am the true vine. I am the vine that won't be left ravaged and fruitless. So that Jesus, together with his abiding people, constitute the vineyard, the rooted Israel of God. As Israel was rooted in the land, we are rooted in Christ, who is rooted in the Father. So you have this kind of extended illustration, this metaphor. The Father functions in it as the gardener or the vine dresser. And Jesus says, he keeps the branches on this vine pruned. There's a cutting where he cuts off, verse 2 says, every branch. Notice, there's no exceptions. Every branch in me that bears no fruit, my father cuts it out. Judas, for example, is such a branch. He's already being cut out. The text reminds us that it's possible to be in Christ or related to Christ in such a way that for a time looks authentic. Right? That to all appearances is like any other branch, but which in fact is not life-giving and fruit-producing. And all branches like that, Jesus says, let's call them professing believers, without fruit, the Father cuts them off. And then Jesus speaks of them as withered and burned. And this process of cutting, it's already underway in the church's history because God works to cleanse the vine of mere professors. Right? Part of what God is doing is he's taking people who are merely outward conformists to Christianity without any interior sap. He's taking them away. He tends the vine that way. Right? So it's a text which forces us to examine ourselves. Right? We want to be people who are in Christ by the sovereign, supernatural gift of the Spirit, by Spirit-wrought faith. Those people are in the branch, and it is not possible for them to be in the branch and bear no fruit. You'll be among the branches that bear fruit, and those branches, Jesus says, are going to be pruned by the Father. Jesus is then saying, I'm the vine, and the vineyard planted in this vine, Jesus Christ, tended by this vine dresser, God the Father, shall bring forth the fruit that God looked for in Israel and failed to find. So that's the background of the text on on the vine. The second thing to look at here is remaining or abiding. Jesus says that we, disciples, are already, he says, you're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You're already in the vine because of the life-giving word of the gospel. That's how one gets in the vine. Jesus speaks his word. You believe Jesus' word. Jesus' word purifies you, plants you in the vine. 
And so the thing for us, the thing for disciples who've responded to the word then, is to remain or abide. This is the heart of the text. The force of this abiding, this remaining, it needs to come home to us if we're going to cultivate a deep spirituality, an interior life. The the image here of abiding is intimate. It's more close, it's more personal even than that of a shepherd to his sheep, or certainly of that of a lord to a servant, even that of a husband to a wife. Like our relationship to Jesus Christ is not merely personal, or even face to face, or even a simple union of two parties, though it is all of those things. All human relationships are personal and face-to-face and have a sort of communion and exchange. But our relationship to Christ exceeds this. Its intimacy exceeds any human example or analogy. It is one of mutual indwelling. Verse 4, you see it there. Remain in me as I also remain in you. Your life is located, if you will, inside of Jesus Christ. And his life is interior to yours. Remain in me as I also remain in you. There's a closeness here. Augustine used to say that God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. And we are to live out of that reality. So Jesus is saying to us, look, my life is not an external thing that works on you from the outside in. It's not some extrinsic set of rules that you have to follow. That's what the law was. But but my life is to be in you this deep inner fountain. You are to cultivate a kind of legitimately deep Interior spirituality. My life is a hidden source of organic growth. And this is the great mystery of what Christian spirituality, in fact, is. The deep root of it, Jesus says, is the love he shares with his Father in the life of the Holy Trinity. Notice that. As the Father has loved me, this is verse 9, so I have loved you. The love I shared with the Father, that same love I've imparted to you, now remain or abide in my love. It's a beautiful calling that we have to remain in the love shared between the Father and the Son. And this remaining, this abiding, this is the key to fruitfulness. The key to fruitfulness. And there's no shortcuts here. I remember I used to work in another life for IBM. And when you'd present schedules, the executives would always push back, of course, and ask if you could do it faster. Right? I'm sure you all experienced this. Well, you, know, I, you said it's going to take two years. Can you do it in 20 months, etc.? There was always this guy. I forget whether it was in Poughkeepsie or Fishkill. But he always used the same analogy in responding to this request. It was, it takes nine months to make a baby... 
And you can't reduce it to one month if you have nine women working on it at the same time. <laughs> right? There are just some tasks that do not go faster because you put more people on them, right? Or because you try and do them in parallel, or because you double down. Well, you know what? That's what fruit-bearing in the Christian life is like. There's no advanced speed course. But you can't double down this week and get twice as much fruit because you got none last week. It's a long, slow process with no shortcuts. No branch, Jesus says, can bear fruit by itself without abiding, without a living and a breathing, even if you'll let me use the word, a mystical communion with Christ the vine. You know, we forget this, I think. We just have a tendency to be jittery in life. We're over here, we're over there. And, and part of why the Lord gives us the Lord's Day worship is to kind of recenter us again. We're called to this kind of communion with the vine. And what makes the, the remaining part, the abiding part, difficult is that abiding is not all sweetness and light. You're going to get pruned. Right? This is where this becomes difficult. We're seeking to abide in the Holy One, and we're not holy. So the fellowship, it's going to be turbulent. Abiding is a battle. And it's not just because we're easily distracted. It's rather because full conformity to the Master's image is going to require some deep cutting at the master's hand, at the father's hand. Pruning, then, in our current state is a painful thing. When we're undergoing it, it can even seem cruel and senseless. Right? You find yourself asking, where is God? Why is he doing this? How does this make any sense? What good can come out of this? We, we go through this because the stuff the stuff that God wants to deal with in us is deeply entrenched stuff. Human nature is recalcitrant, tough, hard material. It doesn't yield easily. And we're not creatures, right? We are not creatures who easily see the redeeming value in our sufferings. If we're Americans, we think all suffering is an unmitigated disaster. Some of you who are old enough might remember the great English writer Malcolm Muggeridge. Muggeridge, uh, sort of a satirist, journalist, converted to Christianity later in life. Wrote a book called, a best-selling book called Jesus Rediscovered in his late 60s. Anyway, Muggeridge has a bracing perspective here on this question of suffering. He says this, Suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now. He would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. Yeah, people don't write like that today. Find me a modern writer who writes a sentence like this. Suppose you eliminated suffering. 
what a dreadful place the world would be. If we know our own hearts, I think we know the truth of this. God brings suffering so that we are not puffed up. So that we don't become intolerable, little, insufferable creatures. Paul had to have an affliction because he saw too many revelations. 2 Corinthians 12. So pruning, not just a little trimming around the edges, is a necessary and it's a good thing. And pruning means suffering. There is no getting around this. But suffering for us is fellowship with the suffering of Christ. Now, a question worth asking here, I think, is, does this text in John 15 tell me, more specifically, how it is I can remain in Christ? That sounds kind of mystical and elusive. Well, yeah, I think the answer is yes. And it's an unsurprising answer, given the rest of Jesus' teaching. It was the word which cleansed us, that we might be established in the vine. And Jesus sees the word, just like he did in John 8, when he spoke of abiding in his word. He sees the word as crucial to remaining in him. Look at verse 7. If you remain in me, now here you would, you would expect him to say, and I remain in you. But he doesn't. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. But having the word of Christ interior to us is essentially identical with him abiding in us. Right, it always comes back to Scripture. It always comes back to our relationship to his speech given to us in the text of Scripture. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love. Right, and in verse 12, he reduces the commands to a singular command. Love each other as I've loved you. I've mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. The 4th century church father, Ambrose, used to say that one's relationship to Scripture is the barometer for one's relationship to Christ. It is not possible to have a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ and a casual and superficial relationship to the text of Holy Scripture. It's a great form of deception to think that can be pulled off. It cannot be. Dwelling in Him, loving meditation on and obedience to the word, especially where the word calls us to love one another. This is how we maintain a rich interior life, a life of abiding communion with Jesus. The word is the Father's pruning instrument. It's how we abide, and it's how we bear much fruit. And that brings me to the third point, fruit. Fruit. So the book of Hebrews tells us that God is a father who disciplines his children, right, so that we might share his holiness. And what does it say? It says, while the discipline's happening, it's very unpleasant. The very realistic picture of the Christian life in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, look, this discipline is unpleasant. But afterwards, it yields this peaceable fruit. Pain, then fruit. What's important for us to see here, though, is that God is a loving Father, right? Who strikes us, if you will, surgically with a fatherly hand. 
Much like children, if a father has to take them to the emergency room and hold them down so they can get shots, right? the child could think the father's against them. Why is the father doing this to me? This seems bizarre and painful and disruptive, and my father's putting me through this agony. It's much like that. God takes his fatherly hand, stretches us out on the table so he can do some surgical work with us. He does this, though. He does this so that we'll be even more fruitful. God is really committed, more so than you are, to your sanctity and to your fruit-bearing fullness in him. This is why he won't let you go. This is why he troubles our consciences. He wants an abundance. Even Psalm 92 says that even in old age, he wants us to be full of sap and fruit. Notice this is in verse 7 and verse 8. Both verses speak about bearing much fruit. Much fruit. There's no escaping the Father's hand on the vine. You bear no fruit and you're cut off or you bear fruit, and you're pruned to bear more fruit. But there's nobody just coasting along, unmolested, on the vine that is Jesus Christ. So, if we think about this just a minute more or so, the vine replicates its own life in the branches, right? The branches have no life in themselves. And Jesus wants to replicate his own life in you, And he does that by the Spirit. So it's right here to correlate the fruit with the fruit that the Spirit produces. Jesus has already spoken of love. In chapter 14, he spoke of leaving his peace with us. And here he speaks of joy. Note this. He says, I have told you this. Why does Jesus tell us all this? You know, he doesn't tell us all this so that we can be grim and think, oh, this pruning is going to be brutal. Right? He tells us all this so that we can be realists, yes, but I've told you this, that my joy, notice that, my joy. Jesus does not give us discreet little packages called joy. He wants his own personal joy that he has in communion with the Father to be in us. We partake of his very joy. You know, the the 19th century German atheist, Friedrich Nietzsche, explained why he rejected the Christian faith that he was raised in. And Nietzsche said this, I never saw the members of my father's church enjoying themselves. I won't make a denominational joke here, but I don't think Nietzsche's father was a Presbyterian. But... It's probably not a fair statement by Nietzsche either. But there are many instances where, from the outside, Christianity can look like a joyless affair. Right? But hear this. I, want, I really do want you to listen to this. Despite the pruning, in fact, even because of the pruning, Christians are not dour. Right? Jesus wants to make his joy in us be full. Pruning means joy. Ultimately, it means, as the text says, he lays down his life to make you his friend. His friend. 
we get these things confused. We put them in boxes. We think, well, this must, I'm going through this. It must mean God's either abandoned me, uh, he's punishing me for something I did, or he doesn't love me, or I'm not his friend, right? And yet, this text puts them both together. Deep, sharp, cutting pruning with the fullness of Jesus' joy. The chief fruit of abiding is to be a member of the company of joyful friends of God. Let me conclude. So this text from John 15, if we step back just a little bit, ask this question. It has one primary function. And I think it's necessary for us to hear it. The big point, the takeaway is this. That living communion, perpetual remaining, intimate, vital, abiding with Christ, through him with the Father in the Spirit, that is the heart and soul of the Christian life. It is, it is the road and path of Christian discipleship. It is the destiny and end of Christian existence. Now again, this is obvious. Probably everyone in here has heard this sort of thing many times. But if we lose sight of the fact that God is an end, what we eventually do in the Christian life is we turn him into a means to an end. This is what I call the Jesus as accessory to my life syndrome, right? So that it's, it's you know, God is up there and Jesus is up there and he's going to help me to do this and he's going to help me to do that and he's going to help me to do that. And it turns out we don't even talk, much less live, as if God himself is our end. As if our affections and our desires terminate on God that we're to abide, and that we're to remain. Now, it is true, of course, God's going to help us do lots of things. But those things are not our end. God himself is our end. There is then, in a text like this, a kind of Christian mysticism. Right? A, a sort of mysterious, real, living union with Jesus that exceeds our ability to articulate it, to express it something that can't be reduced to a set of principles or even a robust set of pious actions. Which is, I think, again, our tendency, right? Christianity becomes, it's a list of stuff here and then a list of my responses to the stuff over there. Now, the stuff is real and the responses are probably mostly good. But what's missed is that Christianity is, in the words of one of our hymns, mystic, sweet, Communion with God, the three in one. That is what the Christian faith is. And that, I suspect, is, goes, cuts against the grain of our instincts, especially our American instincts. Let me put it this way. Is there anything more un-American than this, what I'm about to say? Being is more important than doing. Being is more important than doing. This is why Paul talks about who you are, your being in Christ for two or three chapters in Ephesians, and then talks about what you need to do. Always being, being, doing, being, doing, being, doing. Two chapters of being in Colossians, therefore, chapter three. Always the indicative, always what you are in Jesus Christ, then the imperative. Contemplation 
is more important than action. That's a heresy. Now, of course, doing and acting are far from unimportant. They are quite, quite important. But this here is the root, this deep interiority that Jesus wants us to cultivate with him. This is the root. The other things are the fruit. We need active service, of course. I'm going to get to that in a minute. It's in this very text. And we need to sit at the feet of Jesus as well. But you know what? Jesus does not think that Mary and Martha's activities are equal. This has always offended the church, this text. Mary, he says, has chosen the better part. Martha's running around, serving, 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 serving. Mary's just sitting there at Jesus' feet. You know what Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say, now we need both of these things. They're both pretty equal. Try and alternate back and forth in your life and have some devotional time and some service time. That's what I've heard pastors say when they preach that text. No, Jesus says Mary's chosen the better part. He doesn't doesn't stop there. He doesn't say Mary's chosen the better part. He says she has chosen the one thing necessary. We go for weeks at a time and we forget the one thing necessary. I mean, you can run around frantically Christianizing everything in your life and forget the one thing necessary, the thing without which all other things are fruitless. Fruit comes out of this communion. We kid ourselves, right? We think, all right, I've had enough communion. I've been a Christian a long time. Let me just go bear fruit for a while. That's not how it works. Now, this communion, and here I want to be clear, it's not something that we just, it's not static, right? It acts in the world. We're not, we're not taking monastic vows. We are worldly mystics. Worldly mystics. Notice verse 16. I chose you and appointed you that you might go. So no, you can't sit like Mary at the feet of Jesus forever. You do have to get up and go. I chose you and I appointed you might go and bear fruit. Fruit's born in mission. In people going into the world as witnesses. So there's a tension in this text. We could put it this way. Even in your going, you are to be remaining. You cannot go unless you remain. You cannot remain unless you go. But the center of gravity, the pivot, the fulcrum is remaining. It is abiding. This text makes that clear. That's why, both in verse six, uh, verse seven, and down in verse sixteen, Jesus connects a life of abiding to a life of prayer. Twice he says, "If you remain, ask, and I'll give it to you." Right? Cultivating this life of living, active, continual mental praying is simply another way of speaking the language of abiding. So we need neither monks nor activists. We need Christian mystics who act. And that is what makes our fruit sweet and organic 
and lasting. And we ought to aspire to this in the Christian life. We're going to fall off one side or the other all the time. But we want Christian, if you don't like the word mystics, replace it with, you know, Christian people in communion with Christ continually who act. Otherwise, we end up being more like Christmas trees. I'm sure some of you get uh, not the uh, artificial Christmas tree, but you get the real Christmas tree. You go out, you cut it down, you come home, you put it in some water on a stand, and then you sit around for a few weeks and wait to see if any fruit grows. (laughs) Turns out it doesn't grow, right? Christmas trees have merely ornamental fruit, right? Fruit that's placed there from the outside, but it looks really good. And we know the ornaments are supposed to be on there, right? But the fruit on the tree is artificial, even if the tree's real. Because there's no taproot in the depths of our being. You don't want to be a Christmas tree. You know, there's a lot of Christmas trees because we kind of know what the ornaments are supposed to be hanging on the branches. We want the taproot. That's what Jesus is saying to you here. Finally, I want to share a brief word of warning about this remaining. There was a graduation essay written by a bright 17-year-old student, and the title of the essay was drawn from our text. The Union of Believers with Christ, according to John 15. Who wouldn't want to have a 17-year-old student who could write on the Union of Believers with Christ, according to John 15, and do an outstanding job? Well, this student did a spectacular job. The work was approved by his teachers who said of it, quote, it is a thoughtful, copious, meaning complete, and powerful presentation of the theme of union with Christ. The author was a young man named Karl Marx. So, it is very easy to expound this. right? It's easy to nod one's head at this. It's very hard to cultivate the discipline. Because everything in American life and psyche conspires against it. And if you don't realize that, you won't do it. We, we, we are uneasy with quiet. We struggle with prayer. We're distracted in contemplation. We don't cultivate being over action. It feels like wasting time to us. We're Americans after all. right? We settled the frontier. We do stuff. And once you start remaining it's really easy to stop remaining and to go back to the busyness. Right? So there's a road here to fruitful, joyful friendship with God, and it's littered with cutting, prunings of the divine vine dresser. John Newton, who, the same man who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote this. He said, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. 
And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. This is how the Father moves us from fruit to much fruit, fruit that will last. Cling to the word, cultivate the interior life of prayer, love one another, remain in Christ's love, abide in the true vine. Amen.